and and I am an occasional podcaster. My name is Jeff. I live inside this recording channel with some of the other green team members right just now, and tonight we are here to talk about Roger Zelazny's 1993, I believe, standalone book, A Night in the Lonesome October. I'm joined tonight by Jingles90. Hello. And by John Lorehound. Hey, how you doing? So far, so good tonight. Gentlemen, feel like taking a few minutes to introduce yourselves. Yeah, um, I'm Jingles90. You can just call me Jingles. Um, I am just hoping to someday have a familiar to speak with at midnight. <laughs> hey, I'm John. I podcast over at the Lorehounds, part of Bald Move, and uh, usually about TV. So this is exciting for me to go into the book podcasting verse. Happy to be here. And as I gave a little bit of heads up earlier, tonight's one of the green team's occasional standalone episodes in which we're talking about a book that is not part of a series. And, and as we start to get into, into some of our intro to the book itself, I'll even just start off with, this is one of my three favorite standalone books ever. And I have for years and years read this annually throughout the month of October. In the roughly 30 years since it was published, I think I've done it about 20 times. Wow. It's, it is probably my most reread individual book. Dang, that's very high praise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I can see why you have. <laughs> and with... We will start the evening with a little bit of a spoiler-free discussion of the book itself before diving into, before diving into some of the nitty-gritty details that go with it. But it, but sort of right, bef right before we get there, while we're, no, actually, just we'll do this first. A really quick non-spoilery overview that's going to give us a little bit of a chance to get into the couple of questions we did get from other members of the green team. And I'll start by treating it with a Siskel and Ebert. Thumbs up or thumbs down? How come? John. Sure, I give it a, a resounding thumbs up. I mean, uh, I had never even heard of this book until you sent it to me, until, until you discussed this in the green team planning. And it's so cozy. It's so entrancing like like i need to know what's happening each night you recommended to me to read it uh one night every night of the month one chapter every night of the month and i just honestly could not wait for the next night so i i sped up at times so uh, it, it's just such a good page turner and such a cozy thing to sit down with at night um now i might read it again in october now uh, because we're recording this in september so resounding thumbs up Jingles, how about you? Yeah, uh, resounding thumbs up from me as well. I mean, this is a book that goes right up with up there with uh, something wicked. This way comes Halloween Tree and Coraline for me. Um, I did do the one uh, one chapter a night, and yeah, it's it's hard to put it down, especially when some of the chapters are so short and things just kind of move so fast uh, within them. Um, you definitely just want to keep going. Yep, and. It and given my description earlier, 
it's also very much a thumbs up for me. And part of why I give people that recommendation of the first time you read it, do one chapter a night, is that the first time I read it was the summer between my junior and senior years of high school. So the book actually might have been 92 instead, because at that point it had been out for a little bit. But I'd driven an hour and a half in to work with my stepfather, because he and I were going to do something that evening when he got out, and I just spent the day parked at the public library in the town where he worked, and shot through the entire book in less than the course of a day. Oof. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy thing to do, right? <laughs> it's, yep, it is. Yeah, long. Yeah. But... So, Yep. But even beyond this about the book itself, the elevator pitch I give people is that A Night in the Lonesome October is a gigantic love letter to Universal Pictures horror films of the 1930s and Arthur Conan Doyle with a little Susan of Agatha Christie and a very, very small pinch of Victorian era true crime. <laughs> That's a pretty good description, I gotta say. I mean, uh, you can feel Zelazny's excitement about the characters and excitement about this world he's created and the mystery uh, as you read it, and I think that's part of its charm. Yep. And so the... And so, as for the book itself, it's told through the eyes through the point of view of a dog who is describing to us some very bizarre happenings through the course of the month of October that he and his master end up getting into involving them and many of the otherwise kind of kooky people who live in the neighborhood with them. While Roger Zelazny is best known for Lord of Light, and for the Chronicles of Amber. This was not the first thing of his that I had read. That actually was the Chronicles of Amber, but this is definitely my favorite of them. Over the course of his life, he got nominated for 14 Nebulas, 1-3, and 14 Hugos, 1-6. This isn't one of the things he was nominated for, and that that's okay. I mean, 1992-1993 was, was, I think, a pretty good year for those. Things published in 1992, awarded in 93. The winner for Best Novel was Connie Willis's Doomsday Book. There's a great Legendarium author's shelf that treats that very book. Mm. It was also up against A Million Open Doors, Sarah Canary, China Mountain Zhang, A Fire Upon the Deep, and Briar Rose. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I have not read any of those. <laughs> nope, me either. I've read, for what it's worth, Doomsday Book is the only one that I've read. Of the Hugos that year, best novel tied Fire Upon the Deep and Doomsday Book, but also Red Mars, Deal Beach, and China Mountain Zhang. So that, I mean, given the long standing respect that in particular Doomsday Book and Red Mars have been held in, this wouldn't have stood a chance on there. But it actually 
really ties in very neatly to one of the questions we got from Naz. Would it be a good place to start, and how well does it stand the test of time? So, guys, were either of you familiar with Zelazny prior to picking this up? Other than hearing of Chronicles of Amber, I've never read it. That was about all I was familiar with Zelazny for. Given your previous lack of experience, I think a good way to ask, is this a good place to start, is, does it make you want to go read more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Like I said, I don't think it's too surprising that it was very much reminding me of Ray Bradbury's work. Um, In fact, it might be intentional just for this one book, but I'm still wanting to see what else Zilazny has to offer um, after reading this. What you, John? Yeah, I mean, the POV is so interesting that I kind of want to see what else he does with it. Funny, I don't read a lot of first-person POV, and reading this, I was not sure if I was going to get into it, because it sometimes takes me out of it when I'm reading uh, in first-person, but this was exactly what I would want out of a first-person POV, using that as a device to reveal a mystery in a creative way. And I definitely want to see how this would be applied outside of this like specific genre of writing. Of the others the last that I've read, all ten of the Chronicles of Ember are written first person. But the other set I really enjoy, which is a almost farcical trilogy that starts with a book called Bring Me the Head of Prince Charming, that one's written third person. And each time the way it's written is right for that book. But again, I, I, I think it, that it's, you point out a good thing, which is that he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it as a stylistic choice to put you in a specific mindset. And I think that that's super cool. And that's why I enjoyed it, even though it's not my preferred style that I would go pick out at the library. No, I, I think I agree with you, John. I mean, this is reading a book from the perspective of a dog is like something <laughs> I would fully expect myself to do maybe when I was like in fourth grade, <laughs> but not something that I'm necessarily looking for as an adult. So yeah, uh, that I was as invested in it as I was, was, um, was interesting to me. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that he does limit a lot of things that we probably shouldn't get into right now, but um, I do like the perspective that it is exclusively from Snuff's point of view. Well, and that actually does feel like it's probably a pretty good place to transition into a part where we will now start to dive into the details. So, if you have not yet read this book, go away, we'll see you in a year. Come back and listen next year when you've actually read this through the month of October. Okay, and it's a year later, and we're back. <laughs> so, Jingles, you were in, you were actually saying that that part of what you love here is the way that it works just from Snuff's perspective. Yeah. So, Open up. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that we basically get Jack the Ripper's dog telling us about a month in the life of Jack the Ripper as they're trying to kind of deal with this game. Um, and deal with a bunch of other people who are trying to open the gates. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, Snuffs is the only perspective. Uh, we fully see everything 
uh, Snuff is doing based on how he would choose to do it. Um, he has conversations with Jack just to kind of lay out plans, but then it goes back to him. Like that that's an actual thing that happens in the book is you are limited to Snuff exclusively because Jack cannot talk to him more than like an hour a night, which I found a great to be a great piece. Is it Jack? Is it? It, it seemed it, like it. It seems like it to me. <laughs> is it is it Kane? Is it, why can't why not both, you know? It's uh yeah. <laughs> I'm it, no, I, I, I agree that you, we are very clearly intended starting by about the second or third night of, night of the month to make a connection that Jack actually is Jack the Ripper there's a passage one of the first nights there out in London there was a flash, there was a scream something red came away in Jack's hand as he's cutting the scarf off hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's suspicious. I mean, that's no, the weird thing, right? It's a very yeah. gruesome image, <laughs> but it's played off very subtly. Particularly because with the way that it's phrased, mm-hmm. you can easily consider it to instead be that no, he just that he was just cutting away the end of the scarf. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point too of it being Kane, I think we get a couple hints throughout the book that. Snuff and Jack have been at this for a very long time. <laughs> like, uh, there's myths about them potentially out there um, uh-huh. for the, that the other players tell, including at one point when when Snuff is talking to one of the other critters, one of that one of them says, "This is your first game, right?" And Snuff says, "No," and thinks to himself, "Knowing what I had just given away." Hmm. That's a good what, point. I didn't catch. I didn't pick up on that my first time. So, well, it, so incidentally, we should probably do a quick rundown of who all we actually have in here, hmm, along okay. with the fact that as I, where as I said, it's a love letter to, to the Universal Pictures horror movies, and so where we can call out the hey, we we think these are probably who they are referring to, we should. We start off with the very first people that we are introduced to being Jack and Snuff. Jack, easily we're easily intended to believe, is Jack the Ripper. Snuff is his dog. Then the next night we get Jill and Gray. And we establish Jill is a witch, right? Um, But I, so this is the only one, well, I have a couple, but this is the one where I wasn't 100% sure if we were supposed to have a specific witch to identify here. I don't think so, but it's definitely worth noting that Grey is short for Greymalk, which was commonly invoked as part of the witch trials in the 15 and 1600s. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. Jill is actually the Fort Sanderson sister for the new Hocus Pocus movie. <laughs> I think that that's, uh, that's my head canon. I'll take it. Um... I guess also while we're at the Jack and Jill reference at the end, um, I kind of feel like that's her name only so we can make that last little rhyme bit happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we'll get to, to some discussion about the end because it it is perhaps the very, very end is perhaps the one flaw in the book, at least for me. But, okay, so then we have Nightwind the Owl. 
who belongs with the two humans, Morris and Macab. Those would be, um, I'm drawing a blank on their names right now, but the grave diggers from Victorian London, right? Birkin Hare, the body snatchers, yeah. Birkin Hare, yep. At least, again, that's, that's who it comes to for me. We get Quickline the Snake, who lives in the belly of the Bad Monk, Rastov. And who is pretty, I think, pretty clearly a nod to Rasputin. Yeah, I agree with that. Yep. Then we end up getting Needle and the Count. Needle is a bat. The, The Count is very clearly a nod to Stoker. No, he's just a regular aristocrat. I mean... <laughs> Who likes to sleep in coffins and... <laughs> ah, details. And our other active player in the game is Vicar Roberts and his white raven, Tequila. Sorry, Jingles, go. Oh, no, I was just... This is the other one that I was not super familiar with. This one I think I... is more... Yeah, and this one I think is more of the Lovecraft nod. Okay. Because Lovecraft does have a fair amount of otherwise respectable-looking people dabbling with, as che- with as Cheater and Booba would have said it, things man was not meant to know, trying to make all of those capital letters audible. <laughs> but also along the way, we have the Great Detective and his companion. I like the Great Detective. I think that it was a really fun way to do it, and it was a little bit of comic relief along the way. I mean... Uh, just the way that Snuff reacts to the great detective and is like, uh, I don't even know what to do about this. Just kind of makes me chuckle. Yeah. Particularly, right. yeah, and especially with the twist that the great detective pulls at the end. Oh, yeah. It's so throwaway that I almost forgot about it. <laughs> he does. He, I think he pretty much literally jumps in there, grabs the girl, and then runs off. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, but, but he does so to take the place of Lawrence or Larry Talbot. Yeah, which interesting that he's the well, I guess the vicar has a name, a given name, um, as does Owen, who I don't think we've mentioned yet. But um, yeah, I, I found it interesting that they chose to also give him the name of the actual Wolfman from the movie. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Deliberate. And it. Yeah. Totally deliberate. Oh yes, and and in the midst of the players, yes, it yes, as you reminded me, we have we have Owen, who is very clearly of a druidical persuasion, and his companion Cheater. Cheater is a squirrel, and it's about this time of year that if there's a squirrel who starts hanging around my yard or where I'm walking just a little too close, I will deliberately look over at it and just say, "Hey, Cheater, go away." <laughs> I mean, you'd have an issue in my lawn because there's about 15 squirrels in my front lawn every morning. It's, uh, I got a lot of cheaters around here. Yeah, same. I'm pretty sure my partner is Owen at this point, if we're counting squirrels (laughs) for familiars. And so then with Larry and with the great detective, I believe we've got everybody of importance. Trying to run Uh, back through the... Do we have the good doctor? The good doctor, yep. Ah, yes. The good doctor. The good doctor... And Bubo the Rat, which is another one of those names that's just maybe just a hair too on the nose. <laughs> yeah, they, he wasn't subtle with a lot of these names. <laughs> no, and that maybe actually leads into your thing about describing this as cozy horror. 
did he need to be subtle with them? No, I mean this is this is a comfort novel. I mean it's there's a mystery, but it's not like crazy hard to figure out. Yet it does have twists that take you by surprise. Um, it makes you think a little bit, but not too hard. And it sort of, it holds your hand just enough to get you wanting to go to the next night. So no, I don't think he needed to be more subtle than that. I thought it was super fun that. We had the good doctor, like is, is like very obviously Frankenstein, the count. Oh my god. Wait, you know, how could you get more obvious than that? So it's uh I think it's fun. I like the way he did it. Yeah, I agree. I mean part of that coziness is that you automatically have a familiarity with most of these characters, right? Um very few people are not gonna know who Dracula or the Wolfman or Frankenstein are or Sherlock Holmes even. And it's going to be one of those things where, I mean, for me, I sometimes thought maybe I was overthinking it because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> where's the, where's the big twist? What am I missing? And the twist itself was actually a very good one. I don't think it was particularly big. And I think it actually telegraphs itself pretty well. Uh, that being, you know, Bubo's not, and the good doctor aren't actually players in the game. Um, Bubo's just kind of interested in seeing what's going on. <laughs> Bingles, I like the way that you said it It feels familiar with these people because it almost seems like Zelezny, who's getting towards the end of the, his life when he's reading this, when he's writing this, is sort of inviting a few friends over to play a game, right? And that's sort of what we're being shown here. It's just him picking a few players and creating a game out of things that he loves. To one of the things that you said, while he was getting toward the end of his life, I don't know that he knew he was getting toward the end of his life. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember where I read it. It might just be on the Wikipedia page. But I think part of this book was, was partly this book was written because he was looking, he was given the challenge of making Jack um, a sympathetic character. Which is interesting, considering we don't really see Jack all that much. But we do see perhaps a, a, a person who's on the way to being um, more malevolent than he actually is here. Although, from the context of the fact that, that Sherlock Holmes was involved, and, and the fact that, we do, that you do get a full moon on Halloween, you can actually pin down the year that it happened. Oh. Tell us. <laughs> editing Jeff here, coming to you from the future. During the editing process, I went back down the rabbit hole of figuring out which years in the 1800s had full moons on Halloween and looking at when those lined up with Sherlock Holmes as a character in fiction. The only year that works is 1894. Although if you want to posit that it was Sherlock Holmes before he actually met Watson and the great detective's companion that we see at the, the beginning of that sequence is somebody else, it could be 1875. So it's either about a decade and change before the Ripper murders, or it's about six years after. 
I'm not finding it quickly. But if I remember correctly, it ends up working out to be like 1886 or 7. It's almost the year that the Jack the Ripper murders were happening. Okay. That's super interesting. Uh, so, I mean, he is committing murders. He is pretty active with that knife. So I, I, I think that he is sympathetic in this. Like, I was rooting for him to win at the end. It seemed honestly like the most logical thing that, that you would want for the world. Uh, but, I mean, you could view it from another point. If you don't know anything about the game and what's going on, uh, then there's literally no justification for this violence, and he's just off committing crimes. Right. It's kind of a false choice, right? I mean, we the other guy that's trying to keep the gates closed is Dracula, <laughs> um, mostly because he is selfish. Um, and oh, yeah, his reasoning is great. Yeah, no, it's I like fantastic. the world. I like the world just the way it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of blood out there. The vampires aren't sparkling right now, and I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> Um, yeah, and which I, actually because Jingles you kind of also had the question of is it really a horror novel yeah I I, I think I know the answer for myself for this one and okay. yes it is still a horror novel it still contains many horror elements um, and I think there is you know different levels of horror that can happen and this one finds itself more in the in the medium range um there's horrific acts they're not grotesque or described violently and gratuitously um but we're still dealing with people trying to let out elder gods and uh father getting ready to vivisect his daughter and um you know really dark stuff so i think it very much while it's cozy it does still totally matches a horror novel yeah i mean it's the same way that a song of ice and fire can be fantasy and so can misborn like you don't need to go to the maximal uh ends of certain spectrums to be considered in the same genre you can you can share certain common elements like you said jingles and still be within that realm so yeah it's horror. Melinda, I guess what's funny there is I think I think of it as being maybe closer to a mystery than anything else. Oh. And it it's a mystery that maybe has some horror elements to it just insofar as it overlaps with Lovecraft and Elder God stuff. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see. I guess I'm struggling a little bit with what the mystery part. It's solving the players and their roles, right? Or what? What well, do you see as the like primary mystery part? Is what I'm wondering. For me, as the reader, mm -hmm. the yeah. first time you're reading it, the mystery is not only who are the players and what are their roles, but what is the game. Yeah, we really don't know that until halfway through the month. More than that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that even the name the game is sort of meant to jibe you a little bit because for me, I was like getting frustrated about it after a while. And then I realized that the whole point is when you're talking on the street with another player, it does make sense that you're referring it to this nonchalant name. And I'm supposed to feel frustrated a little bit at not knowing what it is. And I'm supposed to be curious about it. And I'm supposed to be feeling sort of like the great detective in like, hmm, you're all referring to this game. That sounds a little sus. So I ended up really liking that it was just the game in the end. But uh, I, I agree with you. That's the biggest mystery is what the heck are these guys playing at? And yeah, and it's not until it's not until Bubo lays everything out just a few days before the end. That's when it really gets itself gets itself explained. And Bubo is the one who even goes the most in depth on snuff, which is kind of amazing because he's not even a real player. And that leads us into two things that we ought to address. Twist number one is that the good doctor and Bubo aren't really players. The good doctor just wanted a place to come to come conduct his scientific experiments in peace. But twist number two is a thing that happens off screen for us because Bubo goes at goes and sneaks out and switches the wands. So even that the person that we're clearly rooting for by the time everything's going down, even though he's supposed to be winning at the same time he's losing. Jack, who is very clearly several hundred years old, is trying to close the gate and ending up opening it. And so speaking of, we probably should explain that what Bubo figures out is that is that when the full moon rises on Halloween, that it is possible for certain for a number of the proper people to come together in the proper place on a night in the lonesome October when the moon shines full and try to open the gates for, or open the way for the elder gods to return to Earth. And sometimes, sometimes there are people who will stand up, show show up, and stand there to try to open the gates for them. There is always somebody, sometimes more than one somebody, who shows up and stands to keep the gates closed and say, nah, y'all elder gods ain't welcome. Jack and Snuff have always been there to close the gates. The winners get to walk away. The losers are somehow or another generally devoured for their, pres for their presumption. So when there is the one in which Snuff says, yeah, no, we were showing up to that. This is not our first game. He has, he has given away their position on everything. Hmm. Well, Snuff is certainly a very interesting character. I think it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that they never really give away his full story, but I don't feel like I need it by the end that I think I am given just enough to feel satisfied about him. Well, maybe it would be nice. It's not required. Sure. No, I think you kind of get the dynamic right away um, between Snuff and Jack. 
and then um at i mean from chapter one you're kind of just along for the ride and you know that you're there to just kind of witness whatever's going on here um because you know that they're strong companions so okay jingles you you alluded a little bit earlier to the part at the very very end so so what about the ending here well <laughs> um what was it oh how did it go i need the book jack um, and jill went down the hill down Gray the and hill. i came after yep uh they um <laughs> they closed the gate and a page later the book's done <laughs> it's a it's a very abrupt ending um i have mixed feelings about it i don't know exactly what i wanted but um overall i i'm happy still i very much enjoyed my reading experience i just was about 10 pages away from the end and i was wow this is this is how's this end this quick because we're in the middle of it right now we're in the middle of everything happening and going down and um you know larry talbot just swiped the girl off the pedestal and um yeah i was just kind of baffled when it ends so quick and it's just on kind of this um witty line about jack and jill like the longest setup for a joke ever <laughs> what do you think john no i love that ending i i i i uh i have no mixed feelings about it it was it, it was exact to the time it should have ended, I think. It was because everything culminates at that point. And everything is everything that I need answered is answered at that point. And I have that satisfaction of because of Bubo's you know, weird switch up, now Jill and Gray get to get to live and not be smited down for trying to open the gate. And I don't know. I was just so happy from that that the line of Jack and Jill, blah, 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 just just hit me. And I said, okay, you know what? That is the relief that I needed as a palate cleanser to this stressful situation. So no, I actually I actually really like the ending. My my only issue in the book was like much earlier, but I we can get into that later. Okay. And I go back and forth. Some years I'm like some years I definitely feel like, yeah, that it needed to wrap up, and some years I think, okay, we could use about two more pages just to let a little bit of that, bit of that more attention in mind, even if you're going to keep the same last line. Yeah, I think I, that's kind of where I'm staying. Uh, the thing is, I think it's super abrupt. I don't know what... I, I don't think I could tell you what I would actually want out of like the uh, declining action. I have no idea what I'm looking for. Um, so yeah, I think I'll be jumping back and forth just as much. Okay, John, you said you, you said the problem you have with it is earlier. What? You know, it was actually funny. The, the dream world really took me out of it for a little bit. I was... Uh, I get that they wanted to expand the world a little bit and show how much power there is out there that they're dealing with. But I don't know that 
the whole thing was was just a little weird for me and and didn't i think it was just totally jarring uh going to that world but i mean of course we need that to have the latin i forgot what it was but the latin phrase of fetch the stick (laughs) carpe vacuum (laughs) perfect perfect did not see that coming yep particularly because it ends up that it really should have been not fetch the stick but seize the wand Mm-hmm. Yes, one of the people. So one of the people that I've been through that book for with also did not like that dreamline sequence. It's grown on me as I appreciate a little more that it that that's one of the first times the that all of the Lovecraft connection is getting made really clear because. Because that's only right about the time that we first get Nyarlathotep and the other unpronounceables mentioned, mm. and it and it's, it actually is from this book that I have swiped the the phrase the unpronounceables to refer to all of Lovecraft's great old ones and elder gods. <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, I haven't gotten that deep into Lovecraft, so that could be my issue with this: is that I just don't have that love for that work, and so I can't get into this chapter, but maybe I'll, I'll go read some Lovecraft and I'll come back and Dreamland will be waiting for me. There are just two or three of the, of the stories there that end up make that end up really making it be, be tied to that chapter. So if you, so the ones that you would want that relate to, pardon me, to helping appreciate that chapter a little more, are the Randall Carter stories. Okay. One of them is called something like Through the Gates of the Silver Key. It's the only one I can immediately remember offhand, but that should be enough for you to help figure it out. Yeah, no, that, that's a good starting point, thanks. Yeah, I think I've only ever really known what the Dreamlands are from uh, the Eldritch Horror board game. That's uh, one of the expansions. So started recognizing some things uh, Lovecraft connected there. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, is this also the first time we maybe understand where Grey Malk and Jill stand um, as openers or closers? Because it, it just, it seems like it strongly hints at that they must be openers if Grey Malk is traveling through... Um, uh, an ancient it, it, one's realms. It's around then that we first really start to get it solidified. Okay. I will say there is great groundwork laid that it will be impossible for Snuff and Gray to be friends if they are on opposite sides. And then I do think that that makes it more meaningful that they stay friends, even though they know that they're on opposite sides later. Yeah, I think that goes kind of back to some of the coziness of this as well, is that we see uh, allegedly enemies um, spending the majority of their time together working together to play the game, which is an interesting uh, sportsmanship bit that um, maybe isn't shared by the rest of the rest of the characters yes especially when 
first Morris and McCab, and then the Count start going after some of the others. And the Vicar, boy, is he slimy. <laughs> he is. He is end to win, man. <laughs> it is, if I correctly remember, Morris and McCab who went after Rastov, and then the Count who went after Owen in retaliation. And Vicar's like, what do I got? What do I got? Oh, I got a stepdaughter here. We better chain her to the bed. Oh, sorry, the, yeah. the slab. And at night, we're hunting random animals, boys. Let's go. You know, if you're playing this metaphysical game, and you need to, like, lay low so that you don't get arrested ahead of this event, maybe don't be a maniac with a crossbow chasing a bat. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Okay, but... Jingles, do I remember that you had got picked this up as an ebook? Uh, no, I have this in physical copy. Okay, I have an ebook. Do uh, you have an ebook question? Well, it, in particular, the question that I had there is: Does the ebook preserve the illustrations? It does. Excellent. At least the Kindle version. Okay. They were lovely. They were spooky. Uh, was I was it? reading it in bed next to my wife, and she was like, "What the? What is that?" Do either of you have a favorite? That's what I'm flipping through them right now, oh, trying to shit. find one. I should have looked at them before this. I'm unprepared. Sorry, it's a, it's a question that just occurred to me. Yeah, I think it's kind of, uh, kind of dark, but I think I love uh, Cheater's shadow being pinned up with the bones. Or the... Um, pinned up with nails. Or pinned up uh, that was nails, really good. Yeah. Yeah. That one was um, really good. Yep, that that one is actually is probably my favorite of the pictures with our with our introduction to the great detective second. Oh, yeah. And Snuff shoving the thing in the wardrobe back into the wardrobe. Okay, I'll say this. I really liked that chapter 19 is just the count and then chapter 21 is the count dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, it's not really the Count dead, but, you know. We're led to believe it. Yeah. Because Snuff believes it. The, the joys of first-person uh, point of view. Absolutely joys of first-person point of view. So I also... <laughs> looking through these. These are all great. Um, there's just a lot of comedy to them, too. I'm trying to remember the owl and the snake's name, but... The one of the owl dropping the snake is pretty Nightwind good. and Quick Lime. <laughs> yeah, Nightwind. And yes, that's another. That yeah. one's also vividly memorable. The things coming down the stairs, that's really good on October 24th. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, okay, speaking of the things, do you have a favorite of the things? Is it the one in the circle that keeps trying different dogs? To see yeah. which one snuffle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the best one. Yeah. <laughs> easily my favorite. The thing in the circle there, yeah, is it's definitely the one that we get the most interaction with. But I think my favorite are probably the ones that begin as the things in the mirror and become the things in the bottle. Mm. Why is that? There's something about it in which it's a. What do they do? They slither. <laughs> and then a, then a few chapters later there's it's a, you're right they slither 
And there's that definite pause in there each time. But on top of that, at least the visualization in my head is that as they're slithering, they're doing almost the psychedelic lava lamp color changey kind of thing. Mm, yep. I totally so that as that. they're moving around the mirror, depending on which thing is where, it's changing color, and as they interact, and it's all kind of trippy. In my head, their arms are always above their head. I mean, how do you slither unless your arms are above your head? You See, know? I, I think <laughs> of them just as... Wiggling. For the things in the mirror, I think of them as worm-like. Oh. That's kind of how I saw I saw them kind of more like, um, yeah, glob. I was Lots just making them into humanoids in my head, but I probably made that up. Well, the, uh, the thing in the wardrobe is definitely humanoid. Yeah. And just mean. It's very angry. <laughs> yep. And the, things in, <laughs> and the thing in the circle is a shapeshifter. It never does quite get the smell right, though. <laughs> Great. That's what I love the little touches of um, snuff just us being reminded that snuff is in fact a dog <laughs> like yeah i love uh you know laying right up next to jack's chair while he's reading or going to bed or is falling asleep um we've had a quiet night tonight so just laying in front of the fire uh things smell wrong things smell right things sound weird he's like well i'm hiding a body I am flying to Dreamland, and I am a dog. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can totally imagine one or more of the pictures of that body being part of what would have made your wife say, what is that? Yep, yeah, that's uh, not a great look. Not a great look when you're flipping through your Kindle in the middle of the night. <laughs> if I recall, the picture of that one's pretty... Uh, there's no denying it's a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> we get... <laughs> We get more than one. Do we? Do we have a bunch of the, it falling apart? Two or three snapshots, I think. It's not great. It's not great. And then no. Larry's like, ah, I got this. One, one go. And, uh, and it's just fine. So thanks, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> Was it a mistake for Snuff not to tell Larry about his plant friend? About the great detective. I don't think so. Because I think at some point the great detective has to continue to be a third party. And if he, we start to understand that he's trying to become a werewolf and he's doing all these things, then the question becomes is he also a player? Hmm. And if he is a player, is that going to mess everything else up? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I picked this up wrong, but isn't it like after the middle, after the, the new moon, the players are set, like nobody can join or leave the game? You can leave. Okay. Because multiple of the animals. But you still count in the calculations after. You can leave it. The, right. Yeah. Up to, up to the point of the new moon. Players joining late or dropping out 
affect all the geometric calculation of where the center of activity is going to be. After the new moon, if you drop out, it's not going to affect where things happen. It's unclear as to whether you can actually join or not, but unless you're really good, the odds of you doing so and ending up being successful and trying to help support things one way or another feel like they are intended to be very small. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that, that kind of shows up when Larry says, can you do the calculation both way, if I'm a player or if I'm not? Yep. And as they're trying to figure out whether the good doctor is or not, and it, and it is very much driving Snuff nuts. Because, yes, incidentally, Snuff is the one who has to walk all of the lines from one person's house to another and trace them all out in order to figure out where this where the center is has to go if only on he had a clue <laughs> if only he had a clue like a big majestic rock with right ancient writing on it that was glowing exactly where he's standing every single day I, if only he had that clue if only to Dogs be fair, to there's only the one day that it actually has the old writing. Oh, is that right? The on yep, the only day that it's there is the day the gateway to the Dreamlands opens. Hmm. Because he, he specifically makes a comment about it either as they get back or one of the next times that he's there, about how the area that had been glowing was faded and really just looked like a bunch of weathered mark of weathered out markings. Yeah. Well, I'll give this ancient being a pass, son. <laughs> John, you talked about how you didn't especially care for the Dreamland sequence. Do you have a favorite part? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, when the count just randomly shows up, that gets me. That gets me every time. Uh, it's, well, every time. I read it once. But, <laughs> um... I, I loved him just showing up. Um, I loved the twist that, you know, Bubo was not a player at any time, that he's just chilling out. Um, basically, the twists, I think, are what make the book, because there was a time, I would say, around, and this might have had to do with the fact that I had to split it up because I had a lot of life thing going on, things going on, but there was a time around day, like, 10 to 15, where I was... A little bit like, ah, nothing's moving. I, I feel like I'm not uh, getting anything going. But there was just so much good ramping up tension for the second half of the book. And especially the twists just took me by such surprise. Yet they were, they made sense. They were the best kind of twists because they made sense, but I didn't predict them. That I think those just had to be my favorite parts of the book. Jingles? Um... I think I having a hard time kind of breaking up all the scenes in the book. <laughs> uh, this is about a month out from the last time I, uh, when I finished it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I love the atmosphere of the book in its entirety. Like I love that we have, you know, these really quiet moments followed by snuff dragging a dead body across the forest trying to you know get rid of this body that someone planted to um uh 
to point out that the that Jack is a player, get him arrested. Um and just the mix by which Zelazny does all of these things um to make the story work. Um the ending by far probably some of my my favorites, um favorite bits. Um, when everything just kind of comes together and yeah, seeing Dracula come down and be like, no, I want the world to stay the way it is. And I had to fake my death. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and your point about contrast actually works very well with my two favorite pieces of it. I love the night of the new moon, the second trip out to the graveyard as they're all busy digging things up and calling back and forth and tossing body parts through the air to one another. <laughs> yes, I do love that part. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And the way that the old graveyard dog comes over and sort of grumps at them about, y'all didn't clean up after yourselves the last time. <laughs> and and yeah, it, I mean, like, even the beginning when he's just like, I'm a good watchdog. That's what I am. <laughs> Here, can I see your teeth? But then on the much darker side... My other favorite piece of sequence is when we hear this is when we hear the secondary curse orbiting the main dis orbiting the main curse at a distance of some twenty yards or so. Then it's the night after the trip, one of the first couple nights after the trip into the dreamlands, where Snuff has been dognapped and is supposed to be rendered down by vivisectionists, and Jack comes to the rescue. And oh, indeed, are there is there blood heaps and buckets of it? He be ripping. So he be ripping with his magical knife. Which okay, so this might be a far fetched theory, but um, we were talking about placement of the book, uh, where the book takes place within Jack the Ripper's timeline earlier, and. This scene in particular is one that kind of made me think maybe he's not like the Jack the Ripper we're familiar with just yet. Um, this kind of super malevolent force that's very, very um, gory, uh, makes these horrendous murders that seemingly have no you know, purpose. Um, I get the impression that Jack's not to that point, but this knife is driving him there. And that's like a weird little bit of lore stuck in there that I found really interesting. And it, and the part about there being the part about Jack having two knives. There's a, there's the one that's his. And there's the one that's the game knife. Oh, I don't think I put together. Those were two different knives. Yeah, it's a, it's a little small illusion in there someplace. And again, I don't remember exactly offhand. But but that would make sense, right? If he's trying to be a closer, um, whatever is in his knife, he can't be using during the game because it changes possibly the dynamic of what alignment he has. Um, and I think Snuff expresses a couple times that he's worried about the knife taking over. Um, yeah, or at least about the other curse taking over. Yeah. 
Anything else people want to add? Well, I really liked it. I mean, read it. I'm probably going to read it again. I think I'm going to read it out loud to my wife in October when, uh, well, before this airs. So uh, I'll probably be reading it along again if anyone wants to chat about it on Discord. Uh, but it's it's just such a fun read. I'm really glad I read it. So thanks for recommending it, Jeff. And uh, thanks for thanks for having us here. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm very much on that same boat. I don't know if I'll read it every year because I kind of have a, uh, as I said earlier, living rotation of um, different Halloween themed books that I try to get to one of them uh, once a year. Uh, it's definitely made itself into that rotation. Um, and honestly, it's quick enough. I probably will not read a chapter every night, but just, you know, get right through it in a single night. <laughs> um, it, it is a great book. So yeah, thank you for, uh, introducing me to it. You're both very welcome. So before, before we close out. Jingles, if people want to go find other projects that you were involved in, are there any you think might be of interest that you want to share? That's what I don't have any other projects, but I am a pretty frequent visitor of the Legendarium Discord, and I'm always happy to chat with people there. Um, you'll find me most of the time probably in the TV, movies, uh, etc. Uh, channel. Um, yeah, looking forward to talking to people. Okay. John, you said you do that you do television related broadcasting. Where can we go find you? Yeah, you could uh, go to baldmove.com. Everything's on there or look up the Lorehounds in your favorite podcasting app and we'll be there. Always can send me an email at john at the lorehounds.com. It's J O H N. And uh looking forward to uh interacting more with the legendarium community. As for me, I'm a at this point very 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 erratic guest on Spirit Island Saturdays with Handelabra Games' Twitch channel later posted to YouTube. It's It's been a very long time since I've had the bandwidth to be able to show up with everything else that has been going on in life, but I'm hoping to, to make a return trip soon. I occasionally show up for, th for things here, but otherwise, I'm not at... I have lots of other places that, that I float around, Looking my name up is probably going to point to me because I'm, far as I know, the only one of me. <laughs> but that concludes our episode tonight. You can find us on the Legendarium's Discord with an invite link at thelegendarium.com. We're also on Twitter at Green Team Pod, and at least some people occasionally do sh do show up on Reddit. Join us in, in supporting the Legendarium by way of Patreon. As always, we want to give a hat tip to Horizon Brave for, as the founder of the Green Team. Thanks to Craig for allowing us the use of his name and tiny corner of the internet. Our intro and outro music are Galactic Damages by the Jingle Punks. Thanks to my fellow panelists, Jingles and John. I'm Jeff Dugan, and until next time, thanks for listening.